Hey, welcome back to Rhythms of Grace. My name's Nate. I am here with Christine hey. Anderson, <laughs> um, who is filling in for our lead pastor, Sung Kim. And we're here with a very special guest today. Uh, someone who might be familiar to a lot of you, our very own Dave Collins. Hi, hey Dave. Dave is the uh, location pastor at our Ann Arbor West uh, location for Grace Church, and he's got a story to share, right? Yeah, do you want me just to <laughs> sort, of, sort of dive in here, well, or how do you want to get into it? So y- when we, as we talked about in the beginning, you basically said that there's a specific sort of season of, of your life that you want to share about, but maybe can you give us some context, because this primarily centers around your eldest daughter, correct? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Deb and I have four kids. Um, they're all adults now. Um, but the our firstborn, uh, our oldest, Christine, uh, was... Different Christine. A different Christine. Yeah. <laughs> Is Christine going to listen to this, by the way? Uh, yes. She she's will. very excited to hear what oh. I have to say. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, so Christine was our firstborn. Uh, and about 18 months after she was born, uh, she s- stopped hitting the milestones that newborns and toddlers hit physically, Mm. which if you have kids, you know what those milestones are and you don't think about them because, like, of course, your kid walks or crawls or does whatever they're supposed to do. But Christine kind of stopped hitting those, and that started a process of diagnosis. And uh, it turns out that she had muscular dystrophy, which is a genetic disease. Uh, She was born with it. And it uh, means that her muscles uh, pretty much all over her body uh, are weak. And while uh, for a a while uh, they they got stronger and developed, uh, generally speaking, she has very low muscle tone Mm. and experienced uh, decline in physical ability as she got older. So is it is it generally a degenerative? I mean, dystrophy, I feel like, is it generally a degenerative condition? It is, and muscular dystrophy is a kind of uh, classification of diseases. There's about 40 different neuromuscular diseases that are kind of fall under muscular dystrophy. So an example of that would be Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS Mm. is a type of muscular dystrophy. What Christine has is an indetermined type okay. of muscular dystrophy. So it's a kind of a genetic mutation and they don't really know a specific classification for it. Right. So, you know, she went from um, walking and running a little bit to using um, an electric scooter to get around to, to using a wheelchair mm. by the time she was in probably junior high in okay. high school. Okay. And how old were your younger kids because she's your oldest were they she's our oldest starting to pass so they're about two or three years apart so um our youngest is about maybe nine years younger than our oldest uh, of the four so kind of what i wanted to share about today uh was uh this moment in high school where christine's life literally was kind of hanging in the balance Mm -hmm. um i had uh, just become a pastor the year before. I was on a mission trip to Tijuana, Mexico, came back from that trip. Um, on the way back, talked to Christine on the phone and my wife, and they both noted that Christine wasn't feeling very well. She had a mm. little bit of a cold. By the time I got home on the red eye, it was 
maybe one or two or three in the morning, and Christine was doing worse and worse with this cold. And at one point, my wife came in and woke me up and said, her lips and fingernails are blue, mm. which means you're not mm. getting enough oxygen. Yeah. We took her to the ER, and it turns out that her cold had become a septic infection, which means it had become uh, bloodborne throughout her whole body. And she was in really bad shape. Um, she ended up... Uh, having uh, respiratory failure. She had a lung collapse. And uh, it was a very, it was a very traumatic moment. On one hand, we, we took a, a, you know, a junior in high school into the ER. And then 10 minutes later, we were being pushed out of the treatment room by the doctors and nurses, because they had to do some pretty significant intervention. Um, Has she ever responded to illness that way before? No, she, she's, prone to prior to that getting like pneumonias or colds and just getting really kind of walloped by mm -hmm. it really hard yeah um and she'd had a a major spinal surgery a spinal fusion surgery um about four or five years before that so we were used to hospitals and surgeries and sure. that sort of thing but not sort of the acute crisis no, not the not the thing where the nurse comes up to you in the lobby of the hospital room and says, um, "Do you have any coding preferences?" Oh and you're man. like, "What are mm. you even talking about?" And for those of you who don't know, it's you know, do you do you want them to resuscitate your child or your loved one? If you could ask a coding press for preferences, if if all of their means of staying alive collapse, do you want the hospital to do any intervention or not? And, th and the thought that we would have to make a decision like that had just yeah. never occurred to it. And remember, I'm running on, you know, two days of being up, mission trip, fatigue, flying back into the country, just completely blitzed out. So they resuscitated her and had to um, evac her from one ER to the next. So this was... Um, uh, in the middle of the night, they, they t it was foggy, so they couldn't use a helicopter, so we had to take an ambulance <coughs> ride from uh, St. Joe's Hospital uh, over to U of M Hospital where they could treat her oh, man. better. She, I rode in the ambulance. She um, had to be resuscitated three times in the ambulance on the oh way there. Oh, my gosh. So just like um, a total, like, yeah, I mean, so septic, uh, septic shock is a... By the time you reach sepsis, th essentially, like, it's 50-50. Right, uh, even uh, in the best of uh, situations, without any underlying disease or problems, if you have a septic infection, you know, it's 50-50 whether yeah. you live or die. Yeah. Um, and so they resuscitated her three times. Um, they continued to treat her in the hospital. Um, she continued to struggle breathing. Um she was in a medical coma for a week. Wow. Um, wow. They brought her out and said, listen, we, we need to do um, a tracheotomy on her, which is basically put a, you know, a hole in her throat um, in a, into a bronchi and then um, insert a tube uh, and then hook her up uh, to a ventilator. Um, so these days, because of COVID, everyone knows about ventilators. Yeah. But back then, nobody knew about ventilators, at least in my circle of friends. Um, so she came out of the hospital two or three months later, um, uh, on a, on a ventilator, having to have a ventilator to breathe, mm. um, pretty much all the time. Really? Point. So, yeah, so we did, we were living, Deb and I were taking shifts, living in the hospital oh, man. for 
I don't know how long it was, two or three months. And then our other kids were being passed around between grandparents and people from church. And we were getting our lawn mowed and our laundry done and our cars repaired. Right, and, and food dropped off. And, yeah, and yep. all that. Yeah, all that man. I mean, stuff. we I've, I've shared about this, and you, Dave, you and I have talked about it, but, like, I've, I've, lived, I've lived parts of that story as well. And there's just, until you're, the, you're never prepared for it. Like, it doesn't matter how much someone talks to you about the possibility of these things happening in the future with a, with a child that has um, a severe illness. Once you're staring it in the face, you realize, oh, I'm not, I'm not prepared for this at all. Right, and you're not prepared for it mentally, yeah. emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Because yeah. it just is very physically demanding to live and sleep and eat I- in a in the hospital. The hospital, especially in the ICU, um, uh, it it has its own clock, which is it's always daytime. Yep, and mm-hmm. it's uh, a pretty much constant number of machines and sounds and that you want people there who were thinking it's daytime because you want the doctors and nurses to all be yeah. completely awake but it's a uh, it's a non-stop environment it, it, there's no nighttime or twilight or anything in, in ICU right and when someone is in the ICU you're essentially living minute to minute or hour by hour regardless i mean essentially their condition requires oftentimes decisions or procedures or interventions 24-7 anyways. You know, right, so and every, every patient in the ICU has, like, their own nurse. Yeah, essentially their around own. Around them. So that it wasn't, that you know, when she was, before she had her trach, we were, wouldn't be uncommon for us to be asleep in the waiting room with a bunch of other families sleeping on couches and get woken up by the nurse to say, hey, I just want you to know uh, Christine just had to be resuscitated. Oh, jeez, Dave. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty, and then you got, Kids, just like your situation, you've got other kids at home. That also need parents. And the rest of life, I was still a pastor, and so I took the night shift, and I was there overnight every night, and then my wife took the day shift, and and I kind of went into work. I did that for a season with my uh, with my daughter when she was in the hospital again for probably two or three months, and you just sort of you again home isn't really home. I just lived at the hospital. Amy would bring me a change of clothes, and I would. and breakfast, and I would put on my work clothes and go to work, and then I would come back and relieve her at the end of the day. Yeah, and it's super awkward because they have, like, a family shower and bathroom up <laughs> there, and it's, like, the most awkward thing to use ever, <laughs> but it's like, well, I got yeah. to go to work, and yeah. I got to shave at some point. And, yep. you know. and especially when a child is young, even a, even a, a high schooler, you really do realize they need, essentially, a full-time advocate in the room with them. Right, and then, of course, the challenge is, is you know, we didn't know anything about traits or anything, so you overfocus on small details that are completely irrelevant because you don't know any better, and you find yourself getting aggravated at doctors and nurses. And then when it's all done and over with, years later, you go, oh, that was nothing. Right. <laughs> I didn't know that. Right. Mm. Um, and then, you know, for us, then when we came home, now we've got a kid who's not only uh, wheelchair-dependent f- with a motorized wheelchair, she's ventilator-dependent as well, which means, like, if the power goes off, if there's a power outage she can't breathe right and that was a whole new range of things and then there's all the equipment you know when someone's on a ventilator it's not just the ventilator there's other machines that are needed to help take care of them so i think at that point she probably had somewhere between eight and ten different medical machines and devices that we had to get trained on and get supplies ordered for and clean and you know all that sort of stuff so it it yeah it's a pretty overwhelming yeah. It was a pretty overwhelming moment, I think, for all of us. Uh, so uh, my uh, was 
in the midst of all that, were you able to process anything that was going on? Or, I mean, the reason I ask is that I have found that I essentially just sort of reach like the stimulus response sort of, I'm like, you, you literally, it's like, what's the next question? I'm going to make the decision. What's the, you know, without any space for actually processing what's happening. Yeah. My intensity tends to ratchet up in those settings, which means when it comes to decision-making, I'm fairly unpleasant. Mm-hmm. I just make decisions very quickly and there's no wiggle room and there's no going back. And mm-hmm. honestly, I don't want you to question my decision because I got other things to do. Man. Um, so it's very much a survival kind of yeah. mode, at least for me, um, which I, I think the worst of that was probably for my to deal with was for my wife. D- dealing um, with you, you mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. she's the other way on decisions. She's much more kind of, let's think about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or even, and even like my wife also, she likes to process. Like she wants to like sort of like, can we talk about it? And I have some feelings that, you know, all of those things. And they're totally valid ways to make decisions and the way to process those situations. I just can't access any of that (laughs) at the time. And complicating all of that is Deb Deb and I were already midway through a round of marital therapy just Mm. dealing with issues that had arisen for us as a couple in part because we had been dealing with the stress of having an oldest of four kids with a significant disability. So we already had a lot in Hopper. I mean, I remember going to see our therapist in the middle of that time and being surprised that an hour had gone by because I had literally talked for 55 minutes straight. I had just had so much I needed to like process through and and get out of me. Um, So yeah, it was very much survival mode and, yeah, there wasn't much processing then. And, you know, I obviously I'm still looking back on it however many years ago it was, 14 years ago and, yeah. and, or 15, and, and trying to figure out what it what happened there and yeah. what it meant. Yeah, I, I, when my – so I've had a couple instances of kids with extended hospital stays and medical issues. And when my daughter was in the hospital, like when, when it was finally over, I realized that I had like um, – situational memories like I could remember this happened and then this happened and this happened what I didn't have was any memories of how I felt about anything I just realized like I just wasn't I wasn't accessing that part I mean I was not that was 20 years ago I'm healthier now (laughs) as a person right but I just literally I like I couldn't remember how I felt about anything for like those two or three months um, there just wasn't space, you know, in my brain or my soul. Yeah, and I remember, like, just some of the th- memories I have of that time, like a guy from church gave us this little device called an iPod with a screen on oh it. Oh, my and gosh. And, and he had like somehow gotten a hold of episodes of The Office because he knew that Christine and I thought that was funny, and we sat mm. huddled in her hospital bed watching Office episodes w- until way w- late in the night, mm. way later than we should have been up because we sleep and yeah so those are just some of the kind of interesting I feel like it's really interesting for me to be part of this conversation because a lot of this I think you two are like oh this is how it is yeah but I feel like for me I literally that's like okay so that's your entire life is in the hospital but but you also had like an entire life outside of the hospital Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little, like, literally, I can't imagine all of that fitting into one day of, like, oh, you leave the hospital and do something else. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, and honestly, I, did, I, I couldn't tell you how that worked. <laughs> I mean, I was living on, you know, 
four to six hours of sleep a night yeah. and pastoring during the day and early evening like I usually do and taking care of our kids, I I don't really know. Wow. I mean, I think there's times where you have more grace than you yeah. know you have or even certainly more than you ever warrant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Having, right? I know in terms of life outside the hospital for me and cuz my boss, he was very understanding at the time. He mm-hmm. would kind of be like, "Why are you here?" And I was like, "I need something normal. Mm-hmm. I need something that I'm in control of. Like I know that if I sit at this desk and work on this spreadsheet, it will be done and that like I have one element of my life that I can control. So that's why I'm here. And so, you know, there's if I'm if I go back to the hospital or if I sit at home, I'm just going to struggle. Mm-hmm. I think know? part of it, too, for us, honestly, is um, now looking back, I know we, I can't remember whether it was two or three months we were in the hospital, but in the middle of that, we had no idea when or if mm. going home was going to happen. Yeah. So, you know, you're kind of in the moment just going, well, right now this is life. It's not like, oh, like in a month we'll all be home and we can figure out what's next. Like we had... There were no guarantees from anybody along the way about what what that would mean or even if or when she would get home, yeah. you know, which sounds uh, dramatic or threatening or um, overwhelming, and it was all of that. Mm. Yeah. Because you literally, d- they won't tell you because they can't, they can't tell you. They don't know. Yeah. 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 It's, it. it it's given me sort of my experiences um, and hearing yours as well sort of gives me um, an understanding of how people can live in something like a war zone or whatever. Like there's, it's almost like there's this gear that you can access in the midst of trauma that, um, I, I mean, you call it extra grace. And I think that is a significant part of it. I also think like, our, our ability to uh, adapt and survive to traumatic situations is, is probably greater than we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just realizing like there were, are there were still, there are small elements of normal, even in the midst of absolutely abnormal, mm-hmm. you know, circumstances. Well, and yeah, to the, to the point, I mean, I, I kind of joked about the showering and shaving, but honestly for me, that was like a normal thing. Like, yeah. okay, the day is starting, even though it doesn't, <laughs> right, right, um, right. You could have told me it was about to time to go to bed and my body would have felt the same way, but, but just getting ready to get out the door in the morning is a marker like that. Meals were like that mm-hmm. too. And Nate and I have talked a little bit about eating in the hospital but there's something that happens when you go into the cafeteria and you sit down and eat lunch there's a there's a moment where some part of you goes okay this is there's something normal here something i can kind of put a marker down on yeah Yeah. so i mean there's all there's there's all sorts of dynamics that happen in a situation like yours from how you are as a parent to how you are as a husband to how you are as an employer or an employee like in the moment and then for the months afterwards what what are some of the things that you experienced or that looking back you observe as being like oh that's that is that is definitely sort of unique um i wouldn't have been a father like this except that I was sort of in that situation or this is how my church suffered because, <laughs> because <laughs> I was not sleeping at the hospital. Um, 
Yeah, I kind of feel like on some of that, it would be more interesting to talk with someone else who mm. saw mm. me rather than have me talk about it. Yeah. Um, if that makes sense. I, I know that, um, I guess one of my takeaways from that time, and, one, and it does color all of the things you mentioned, is that um, you, 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 ha- you are constantly faced with limits. Like, mm. and so one of my friends who's in ministry once said that, that everyone lives towards a certain limit. And um, we talked about this in the Job series, how there are, there, are, there are certain finite limits to human experience, but there's limits to what we can do and how we can respond. And, you know, when, when Christine, my daughter Christine, was first diagnosed, you know, your first response to the parent is, I will do every single thing. I will, you know, I will spend all my energy, all my time, all my money, and we will fight this this mm. disease with everything we've got. And then you realize after a while, like, well, I have other children mm-hmm. um, and I have limited financial resources and I have limited physical energy and limited intellectual and emotional energy and there's only so many hours in a day. And you realize, well, there are, there are limits that I mm. have to live with. Like at some point, I have to stop doing all the research on the web about ventilators. Like I just have to stop doing that because I, c- I physically can't sit in front of my computer screen anymore. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's, that's helped us as parents with all of our kids be able to recognize that there's certain limitations that we have as, as parents and there's um, limitations they have as kids mm-hmm. and we have to kind of treat each other understanding that it's also true for church like there's just things you can do as a church and you can have faith and believe you can do more than those things but there are limits for what any church can 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 do or or or, or address in a moment yeah. so mm-hmm. i don't know if that makes sense no it, i mean it absolutely does it was it was one of the things that i observed as a blessing about uh, about both of the sort of situations that I found myself in with my kids, which is that, and I think I talked about this in an earlier episode um, with Sung, where, oh, we were talking about Abraham and Isaac, mm. um, and when when Abraham took Isaac to be the sacrifice. And for me, seeing my children in that setting made me realize, like, oh, I am not able to keep them safe. Mm as much as I wish that that was in my control, at the end of the day, there are forces larger than I and things outside of my control that I can't protect them from. And so being able to sort of release your children in that way, I think is, it's healthy, it's necessary. Like you can't, your kids are going to grow up and they're going to move away and they're going to try their own stuff and they're going to fail and they're going to get sick. And already having sort of gone through the fire of having to relinquish control um, in is in some ways really good. It's hard, mm-hmm. but it's good. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's right. That all to me goes with the limits thing of just realizing that um, w- we kind of by necessity we all live and operate with certain assumptions about life. Yeah. And you know you you assume as a parent that your kids are not going to be right sick. <laughs> Right. Right. You assume that they're going to be cognitively and physically functional to do whatever it is that they want to do. You, you assume they're going to grow up and go to school right. and f- get married and have a job and have kids. You just kind of assume all that. Th- right. And you, you assume that you're not going to get, you know, creamed by a car on the way home from yeah. doing a podcast. You know, you 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 assume that. right? Yeah, absolutely. And y- 
that's appropriate, but then when you're faced with limitations, you realize how many assumptions you really have, and, and I've had to unpack that over and over again because w when you get faced with assumptions underneath that, what you get faced with is arrogance, like mm -hmm. your own mm -hmm. arrogance and your own sense of, like, I'm my master and commander. I'm going to manage my life. I'm in charge of things. And that shows up in all kinds of ways. Like s I was thinking about on the way here today about how um, how much that's affected prayer because because most of the time when we pray, we, we ask God for things, but we think we can think about how they're going to get answered. Yeah, like, God, right? you should do this. I've already thought about it. Yeah. Just make or, this happen. Or, yeah, like, and the, the example I often use is it's one thing to pray, give us this day our daily bread when the, when the cupboards are full or the bank account is full, and you know yeah. that if it gets down to it, you just have to drive to the store and buy the food. But when the bank account's empty and the cupboards are empty and you're praying that prayer and you don't know where it's going to come from, that's a different reality. And mm -hmm. and I found, at least f for me as a, as a parent, part of the kind of living towards limits is just realizing that um, I, I've had to pray things that I, and I know this, it sounds, of course this is true, but it, I've had to pray things and I don't know how they're going to be answered or if, mm -hmm. which is a super obvious thing to say. But again, most of the time I think we pray as if we know what the answer is. Oh, for be, sure. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so interesting that you say that because I, I have noticed that my types of prayers have changed. I never associated it to sort of like the, the medical situations I've been through with my kids. But my prayers, by and large, have become like God help me to be who you need me to be in this situation. I used to pray a lot more for God to sort of impact the circumstances around me. Like, do this, please do this, make this happen, make this stop. Um, and I still do pray that because I think it's important that we pray that way. Um, and there is evidence of God doing those things. But by and large, I realize that the most consistent thing that I need is grace to be who God wants me to be in the midst of circumstances that are outside of my control. That's like, that feels like that's more and more of my life instead of less and less, the more that I'm aware of it. Yeah. And I think ultimately praying that way and then understanding those limits has helped us, I guess, again, I'm just thinking out loud here in the moment, just helped us as parents be um, maybe less controlling as our kids got older and mm -hmm. realizing that, they have to be able to make decisions and kind of move out on their own and that those those decisions may or may not align with th what we think they should be. But again, I think because of having to deal with Christine's disability and this, you know, life or death situation, it does make you realize that, well, you have limits as a parent to what you can do and influence, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And one thing I've I've seen is like, you know, now – when, since I've known you, you know, if, if there's something going on with Christine's health or something you're, you're pretty upfront with, you know, this is what my reality is. I, you know, I'm, I'm caretaker or whatever. What was that like at the beginning, right? In those mm -hmm. first stages were how were you able to communicate that to other people or was it more like, oh, I'm just really busy or compartmentalizing? I think I probably did more compartmentalizing. I would say kind of what you're describing is a newer thing. I think I'm better at just telling people what's going on. I think in the past when I did talk, it was sort of more of a gush of things and probably a little bit shocking to people because I was probably a little more graphic than I needed mm -hmm. to be. Um, but I, but I do feel like I'm more able 
and and more committed to with with the church and and with our staff to be able to say yeah this is what's going on right now this is really hard I need prayer um, probably more directly than I was back mm-hmm. then and I think it just t- has taken years for me to sort of not just think that's okay, but know know how a safe way for me to articulate that is so that I don't end up trying to use that as a therapy moment because I've done that as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. I'm yeah. not need to talk to you, so I'm going to tell you what I need. You know. Yeah, yeah, that's a hard balance to learn to strike between like being honest, but then also, yeah, setting up the right boundaries with that. Yeah, and being able to understand that I think everybody everybody has their own set of limits and challenges. One of the things we did early on with Christine and kind of continued on through adulthood with her was to talk about how everyone's got things that are kind of wrong with them, whether it's glasses Mm -hmm. that they need for their eyes or braces or whatever their issues are. We all have stuff that doesn't quite work right. Mm -hmm. She has stuff that's more obvious and more outward, but um, again, learning to live towards limits kind of helps with that. Yeah. How coming back, you know, it sounds like your life before this hospital stay and your life after this hospital stay was dramatically different. How did the rest of your, how did your, the rest of your family, your kids, you know, your, your parents or Deb's parents, how did everybody sort of acclimate to that new reality? That's interesting. Cause I feel like I'm only kind of discovering that now with our kids mm. as they're past their teens and a little bit older, I would say, um, with more extended family, it's a little bit more, um, sort of hands off. I'm not sure how much they understand all of that, except it's complicated and hard. I would say with our other kids, there is a, um, almost like a huge sensitivity towards people who are different or have Mm. challenges in life, um, and a capacity to get next to them and communicate with them in a way that is very human and, and very um, relational, where I think maybe some of their peers, they feel distance more when they encounter someone who doesn't quite fit in, yeah. doesn't, doesn't quite suit kind of societal norms. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's interesting to hear, to hear you say that because it does feel like s- y- you tend to see siblings go one of two directions, either sort of resentful of, of, the li- of what the limitations or the attention means for their life um, or increased sensitivity and protectiveness. Did you try to foster that with your children at all? Um, I think the thing we talked about the most was that the tendency in families with a child with a disability is for all of the emotional and physical resources to be funneled towards that child because you feel like so much is at risk. And we talked about that a lot as a couple and also – kind of with our kids to try to figure out, well, what's in what way is our love and our resources as parents going to be available Mm -hmm. to to each one of them? Mm -hmm. And in what way are we going to allow them to be free from, uh, like a lot, like, again, this is really typical in families with a kid with a disability. The other kids assume that the disability is their fault. Really? Yeah, they Mm. just think, oh, my my sister or my brother is sick or has a problem. Somehow I must have caused that or somehow enabled that. And so we talked a lot with them when they were younger about, oh, Christine has this disease. You didn't, it's not your fault. You didn't, you didn't make her have that. She, she just has that. Just like you have things that you, you, 
we struggle with. So we yeah. try to create some freedom for them to not feel a sense of responsibility in a in a in a um, manipulative way or, mm-hmm. or dysfunctional way yeah. for Christine. So how um h- how how did your faith change in the midst of especially this sort of couple month period? I think, uh, you know, just uh, uh, for me, it was a really humbling time to have to depend on people. I shared this in a sermon a few weeks ago, but it's one thing to sort of have people drop meals off at your house, but when they come into your house and they clean it, Mm -hmm. and then they want to also do your laundry, and then the church lady that you see in the lobby as a pastor is taking your tidy whities home (laughs) to wash (laughs) them and brings them back folded, like that's a little awkward. Right. You know, and then you realize like, oh, like there's a little boundary there, but like, I don't, I, I, I can't do my own laundry Mm -hmm. right now. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to receive that. Um, And I think we all have areas like that where there's things, well, that's too personal. I couldn't let someone do that for me. Um, So I, uh, humility was a, was a big lesson there for me of just kind of like, oh yeah, I'm really dependent on God and other people around us. Um, Whereas I think I tend to be much more of a sort of self-starter. I can get things done mm-hmm. kind of person. I had to come to terms with the fact that I just couldn't um, couldn't manage on my own. Like no matter how tough I was or how strong I was, this thing was happening. Yeah, and beyond beyond yeah. your capabilities, yeah. as high as they might be. I think the other side of it, kind of uh, kind of looking back to just has you know ironically to do with resourcefulness. I. Um, I'm very much a kind of plan ahead person and my wife very much lives in the moment. And so when after the surgery, Christine's on a ventilator, she's in her junior year and she's talking about going to college mm-hmm. with my wife. And I'm like, well, that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Like you, you can't go to college and be in a wheelchair on a ventilator. Like it was, I, it wasn't even a possibility in my mind. Mm-hmm. And they just looked at me like, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> uh, that's interesting. You think you can tell us what well, won't work. Um, and that was when I, I think for me, sort of one of those moments where I realized that it takes a, a great deal of kind of in the moment resourcefulness to get through life when you have a significant disability. And I was going to have to sort of shift my way of thinking about life. And that affected me kind of spiritually because I, again, realized how much of my spiritual life at that point was about what I could sort of do and accomplish or get God to do and accomplish rather than just saying, God, I, don't, I, I really, there's no way this is going to work. Um, but if you want it to, it will. So I'm open. Just show me how. And yeah. that probably, if I'd heard myself say this w- way before, that, I would have said, oh, of course that's true. Right. But, I, but, I, but I don't think honestly and on a soul level, I really, I really believe that. Mm. So I routinely have moments now where I'm just like, Lord, I have no idea how this is going to work. You're going to have to show up and do mm. something here. And that's literally the way Christine got through college. I mean, I don't know. There's not very many kids who go through college in a wheelchair. There's a, a handful in the state who were going through on a ventilator at the time, mm. like literally s- five or six maybe max that anyone knew about. Yeah, and so schools are, are not well-resourced to, like, you know, navigate that at all. Oh, oh no. It was, yeah, it was really hard. So you have to, you're basically making it up as you go. Hundred percent, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. Uh, it's again. I mean, if we talk about 
silver linings, and I don't want to be trite about this, but there is an element. What you're describing is, in some ways, flexibility is is in some ways another word for faith. Simply saying, like, hey, this is beyond what I can plan. This is beyond what I can execute. If God doesn't show up, it's not going to happen. Yeah, it's interesting to me just talking today, like all that happened before I got into church planting. Mm. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Like one of the things I've had to learn, but when you're going to plant a church, the idea of planting a church is crazy. Like to attempt it is crazy. (laughs) I mean, that's a whole nother podcast <laughs> in and of itself, but you're but, right. But but it is. And yeah. So you end up just going, well, God, I don't, I don't, I think, I think this is what you want us to do. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's going to work, but let's, let's take a few steps. Yeah. I mean, in, in some ways, the, oh man, I gotta, I gotta say this quickly and then get back to your story. But the, the concept of church planting is that you're expecting enough transformation to happen in the lives of the people around you that it coalesces into like a gathering, uh, a, you know, a community. And it does. That's, it seems crazy. It seems crazy. It takes some faith. Wow. How, how did, um, and I, this is probably harder to answer, but how did, how did Christine navigate all this as a person? And uh, did she, did she keep faith, lose faith, find faith? I think she had sustaining faith in it in ways that were often really surprising. I mean, when you have a kid with a disability who goes from walking and kind of running to using a wheelchair, you're just thinking, oh, like, oh, what is it, can you remember running? Mm. Like, you just, it's just really, like, heartache that you feel. And she's like, well, this is my body, and this is what it does now. That's what I know. Like, Mm. I can't get caught up in that. This is what I'm doing now. Um, So there's some ways in which her common sense approach to things has been pretty powerful. Um, I think there's been struggles along the way that um, some of them have been unaddressed and sort of show up unexpectedly just from trauma from hospital yeah. visits. Yep. Um, so I, th- I think it would be disingenuous to say that that wasn't there. But I will say she was uh, t- surprisingly resilient through all of that. Um, it helps that she's like got a pretty strong like intellect and mm-hmm. so she's a thinker anyway. Like when she got to college on the first day. They put all the kids who were linguistics majors together in her small honors college situation, and they were all the same kind of nerd, <laughs> and they were so happy to be together. <laughs> and I was sitting in the room because I was working as her aide at that time, thinking, oh, my gosh, my, my child has finally found her kind. She found her people. <laughs> she found her tribe. I mean, these are all – I mean, Christine learned the Elvish alphabet when she was, like, in seventh grade from Tolkien's books and would write it. She would write Elvish script. Oh my. Christine, you're nodding pretty emphatically there. I also <laughs> did that, which is why I started out as a linguistics major. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, they were all – they all had – they had all written the same, if you know what fanfic is out there, they had all written the same fanfic about the same shows, and they were all into Doctor Who, and oh, oh my gosh, I was sitting there going, wow, the the nerd quotient here is so high. I loved it. I loved it that she had found yeah. her tribe, but still, um, that all goes to say just kind of, I think one of the ways God gifted her was intellectually, and so that I think that really helped mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. physically there were, there were challenges. Wow, Dave, that's that's quite a story. I mean, I, and I understand, you know, as we've as we've talked, that 
clearly it's not like everything was everything just worked out you know after the fact there continue to be challenges and continue it doesn't stop but no and that's the problem with with chronic diseases they they don't work out yeah mm. i mean she's not better than she was then like yeah. physically it's it's if anything she's probably worse but that moment was a crystallizing moment yeah. for us of of life and death being on the line and seeing God show up and do things and then looking back and learning what we've learned since then. Yeah. Well, we often end, um, these, this, these type of podcasts this way. Like, is there any other part of the, of the story or anything else that you're like, Oh man, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to leave this podcast without having the chance to say X, Y or Z? I, I mean, I think for us, there's been a pretty consistent theme of what I've talked about that has to do with community and being around yeah. people mm -hmm. and being around people, not only people who care, but letting them care for us and learning what care actually looks like and means in the church beyond yeah. almost everyone can talk about a meal, like the meal train thing. Like, you know, you don't have to be in a church to have a meal train, but when, when you're in a church, a healthy church, th it's, it's so much more than that. And I, I, I think that again, that was part of God's grace to help us survive through. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's a letting yourself be cared for is actually like a skill and a lesson mm -hmm. that you need to learn. We're we're not we're not taught that. We're not taught. We're taught to be independent, and that's not inappropriate. Like, we need to learn to exert our independence. But learning to allow yourself to be cared for is a skill. Yeah, I mean, just this past year, we had some other challenges with Christine, and someone asked if there's anything they could do, and I realized one little thing that would just help me was I needed someone to walk our dog once mm. a week just so she could get out. And once a week, this person came over and walked our dog, and it was a little small thing. But, uh, again, I think all of that goes right back to this time of learning. Like, you know what? If you can find some ways to offload some things that just help give you some ease of mind, you need to, like, yep. take advantage yep. of them. So. Yep, access them. <sighs> well, Dave, thanks for sharing, man. I know that that's a uh, – yeah, th uh, not everyone will experience that. I mean, I know, Christine, I appreciate that Dave and I have had very similar experiences around medical issues with our children. Yeah. Not everyone will experience it, but um, I think there's a lot of lessons there for, for any of us as parents or navigating, you know, situations with people we love. Thanks for, thanks for being honest and thanks for taking time to, to share. Mm -hmm. Sure, my pleasure. Awesome. Any, any closing words from you, Christine? Well, I would just add, you know, I think there are lessons even for me, not as a parent, um, and, you know, just as, as a single woman, right, to just remembering, like, all of us need to be learning those lessons, and I think it's, uh, a f it's faster to learn it by, you know, trial by fire, <laughs> but, um, all the learning curve is steep, yeah. no, no question, <laughs> but all of us need to learn to, to live into healthy community and to, uh, trust God when we can't see the answers. And so thank you for, for sharing your story, Dave. Well, that's going to wrap up another episode of Rhythms of Grace. Um, we hope to continue bringing stories of people coming out of the ashes. Uh, and we hope that you will join us in future episodes.